Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. We need to address the overwhelming anti-Semitism of the left. You know, those are the people that are out there talking about Trump is a white nationalist. He's literally Hitler. Death to the Jews. Free Palestine. None of that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to sit there and accuse your opposition of being Nazis, you probably don't want to side with their ideology. So either people have not been paying attention or they're completely naive. They haven't realized the huge issue with the Democrat Party, the move to anti-Semitism. They continually impede Godwin's law on a daily basis with reckless abandon. That is the unwritten law that states, as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches. That is, if an online discussion, regardless of topic or scope, goes on long enough. Sooner or later, someone will compare someone or something to Adolf Hitler or his deeds. That point, which effectively the discussion or the thread often hits a brick wall and ends. But somehow, these stalwarts of equality and tolerance have a huge problem with the Jewish community. Moreover, they have a huge problem with the state of Israel. What's even more concerning are the new representatives that have been sworn in and their views on the Jewish nation. It's very similar to those who are looking to take their economic fascism that they wage upon conservative thought online and the destruction of the financial uh, success of many of these opposing viewpoints and how they're opening the scope of this tactic against Jewish economics and Israel. So first, we should look at the new freshman class of the 116th House of Representatives for a disturbing view into the left's anti-Semitism. This is from the Free Beacon. Abbas Hamida, a Palestinian right-of-return activist with a history of calling Israel a terrorist entity, he attended a swearing-in ceremony and a private dinner with Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan. Remember, she's the Palestinian representative who was going to put her hand and swear in on Thomas Jefferson's Koran. Oddly enough, that Koran was actually a Koran that Thomas Jefferson, in the midst of the Barbary pirate slaughtering of the ships that we had sailing through that area, his understanding of the Koran and translating it to English was a, what allowed them to understand their ideology and understand why jihad was being waged against them. Yeah, she was going to place her hand on that Bible and swear in, but or that Koran, and she didn't. She went with her own Koran, and she also dressed in Palestinian garb. So she's hanging out with a Palestinian right-of-return activist. He's the executive director of the U.S.-based Palestinian Right to Return Coalition. He has equated Zionists to Nazis, said Israel has a delusional ISIS-like ideology, and called the creation of the country a crime. He tweeted out a picture of himself holding a painting of Tlaib and standing beside the newly sworn-in Congresswoman. I was honored to be at Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib's swearing-in ceremony in Detroit and private dinner afterward with the entire family, friends, and activists across the country. Hashtag Palestine, 
hashtag tweet your throbe, and hashtag Rashida Tlaib. Within hours of his tweet, several pro-Israel activists and conservative reporters pointed out some of his old tweets that shown a disdain for Israel. He has quite a few of them. Quote, criminal Zionism will eventually die just like Nazism. No racist and supremacist political ideology should maintain itself. This is why you, you're a covert and financed by the AIPAC, he tweeted out. Israel does not have the right to exist. The terrorist entity is illegal and has no basis to exist other than a delusional ISIS-like ideology, he tweeted out in 2006. Many of these per, uh, permeated his tweets in 2014 and 2015. Now, Talib, the first Palestinian woman elected to Congress, has expressed her support of the Palestinian state last week and spoke out against a Senate bill, which has basically been shut down by the government shutdown. It's Senate Bill S-1, sponsored by Marco Rubio. She castigated the Combating BDS Act. Now, BDS isn't some sort of fetish, and it isn't some sort of irritable bowel syndrome. The BDS movement, which we're going to get into detail, because I think people need to realize the genesis for the BDS movement, what it entails, who it's in, who's involved in it. Um, there's this movement to basically economically strangle Israel and anything related to Israel. But there's a bill that is now being curbed on the floor of the Senate because of the government shutdown, which is fine. Shut the government down. Let's build the freaking wall. I don't care about government being at a halt because that's what its design was meant to be. Gridlock, where only the good stuff can make it through the House and the Senate and any non-essential employee and my, you know, I mean, they're going to get back pay and overtime once paychecks are cut when everything gets back into motion. So don't cry too much for them. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, they're all helping out. Schools are giving free lunches. There's lunches being served to those. They're going to be covered. Again, they're going to get their back pay in full plus overtime. Don't cry too much for them. But the Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East Act of 2019, which combats the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, the BDS movement, um, is something that is trying to be passed. And Talid said the act is literally an attack on our Constitution. <laughs> really? So, yeah, the 17-day shutdown so far, well, it's actually longer than that, continued this week after top Democrats declared late in the weekend that no deal had been reached. So that is basically curbed this bill. Now, with Congress open, the top GOP Senate leaders had scheduled a vote to move forward on what congressional insiders described as a mega pro-Israel bill, including measures addressing Israel and Jordan's security and addressing boycotts of Israel amid uncertainty generated by the Trump administration's new policy to withdraw from Syria. Top Democrats signaled um, on Sunday that they would not allow consideration of this legislation. Senator Chris Van Hollen, Democrat from Maryland, Ben Cardin, Democrat from Maryland, Bernie Sanders from Vermont, all came out against the pro-Israel uh, legislation. So obviously there's no love loss between Palestine and Israel, and there's no love loss between the Democrat Party and Israel because they back Palestine. And so who is Abbas Hamida? He's the co-founder of Al-Awada, an extremist organization which is basically against uh, the state of Israel's right to exist. And of course, like we said, he has been really vocal about how much he can't stand the Jewish community. 
and he's hanging out with this new Palestinian representative. Now, one of the things we have to look at is he gets into it with some of the in, um, some of the people from the women's march. More importantly, Linda Sarsour. Believe it or not, he was communicating with Linda Sarsour, but around the time that Sarsour started campaigning for Bernie Sanders. They basically refrain from communicating on social media with each other, as well as not meeting at ra- random BDS events. But prior to this period, Hamida and Sarsour were in constant contact and even joked about ethnic cleansing of Jews from Israel. Let's listen to Linda Sarsour back in December, December 13th of 2018, and her views about, well, her views about Islam. This administration also went against the international community, thought it was a good idea to move the American embassy to Jerusalem. And this president stood up and declared, and thought it was just about words, that he has so much power that he can stand up and declare that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And since he thinks it's as easy as words, I will declare to all of you here today in Sacramento that Jerusalem is and always will be the capital of Palestine. Semitism of the women's march has now come into view. It's now come into question and has a lot to do with the stances the women's uh, march leaders have taken in the past. Now, just a real quick background on the women's march. It actually was something that was built up by Breanne Butler, Karen Walkich, Vanessa Rubel, Mary Lynn Folger, a fashion designer turned entrepreneur with a sideline activist uh, political brand of herself, and also Bob Bland. Not to be confused with Bobby Blue Bland. He was a musician from back in the day. But apparently they were trying to take the the whole, you know, grab them by the hoo-ha thing and turn it into a feminist march movement. And there was some individuals who stepped into the fray. Michael Skolnick being one of them, who Van Jones basically said, you know, it's rare to have one person who everyone respects in entertainment or in politics or among the grassroots, but 
to have one person who's respected by all three, there isn't anyone but Michael Skolnick. Well, Michael Skolnick, he's the one who also, um, he, he was reached out to by Ms. Rubel, who basically formed the OK Africa digital media platform with the Roots uh, Questlove, which is sad for me because I been a big roots fan and i like quest love being a drummer and you know things fall apart amazing album but anyways what's interesting is linda sarsour um she gets brought into the fray tamika mallory carmen perez they get brought into the fray by michael skolnick and this is where things took a turn according to several sources this is from tablet magazine in the first hours of the meeting for what would become the women's march something happened that was so shameful to many of those who witnessed it, they chose to bury it like a family secret. It was there that the women who were opening up about their backgrounds and personal investments in creating a resistance movement to Trump, Perez and Mallory allegedly first asserted that Jewish people bore a special collective responsibility as exploiters of black and brown people. And even according to those close hand, uh, secondhand sources, claimed that Jews were proven to have been leaders of the American slave trade. There are canards popularized by, quote, The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, a book published by Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam, the Bible of the new anti-Semitism, according to Henry Louis Gates Jr., who noted in 1992, quote, Among significant sectors of the black community, this brief has become a credo of a new philosophy of black self-affirmation. To this day, Mallory and Bland deny any such statements were ever uttered, either at the first meeting or at Mallory's apartment. Well, Let's listen to Tamika Mallory on The View in her own words. And Tamika, you came under some fire for your relationship with uh, Louis Farrakhan uh, and the Nation of Islam. Now, he's known for being anti-Semitic, for uh, being homophobic, but you do attend his events and you posted, I believe, a, a photo together calling him the GOAT, which means the greatest of all time. And you are running an organization that says it fights bigotry. Do you understand why your association with him is quite problematic? You know, I think it's important to put the, my attendance, my presence at Savior's Day, which is the highest holy day for the Nation of Islam, in proper context. Okay. You know, as a leader, as a black leader in a country that is still dealing with some very serious unresolved issues as it relates to the black experience in this country, um, I go into a lot of difficult spaces. I wrote a piece immediately following uh, the beginning of this controversy uh, talking about Wherever my people are, that's where I must also be. So I also go into prisons where there are people who have been convicted of heinous acts. And I am trying to help people to move from wherever they are today and build that unity to bring them to a place where we live in a more fair and equitable society. And I think that that work is not easy for everyone to understand, but it's certainly work that I'm committed to. And everywhere that I go is difficult. The Women's March was very difficult. I met with a lot of women who did not even understand why race was important to be a part of the conversation as it relates to women's rights issues. And it was a lot of, you know, offensive uh, rhetoric that I heard. And, you know, and just because you go into a space with someone does not mean that you agree with everything that they say. But let me push back a little bit. Why call him the greatest of all time? I didn't call him the greatest of all time because of his rhetoric. I called him the greatest of all time because of what he's done in black community. Of course, one may ask, oh, the GOAT. 
Louis Farrakhan, he was doing so much for the black community. How did that work out, Malcolm X? Apparently, he has stated in numerous different sound bites that yeah, he might have had responsibility in the uh, offing of Malcolm X. But Meghan McCain jumps in, thank God, to push back on the view as they allow these Palestine, pro-Palestinian, pro-BDS uh, propagandist of the Women's March to spout out whatever they want to spout out. You know, and just because you go into a space with someone does not mean that you agree with everything that they say. But let me push back a little bit. Why call him the greatest of all time? I didn't call him the greatest of all time because of his rhetoric. I called him the greatest of all time because of what he's done in black communities. And I think that, you know... Well, I think I, let that, me just interject really quickly. I would never be comfortable supporting someone who called, I'm not anti-Semite and I'm anti-termite. It's the wicked Jews, the false Jews that are promoting lesbianism, homosexuality. I actually spoke with the journalist from Tablet Magazine who released an investigation report on your organization. And in part, they allege that there is a lot of anti-Semitism surrounding this march. Specifically, the report alleged that you, Tamika, and co-founder Carmen Perez asserted that, quote, Jewish people had a history of exploiting black people and were proven to be leaders of the American slave trade. Now, a lot of people, by a lot of people, I include me in this, think that you're using your organization as anti-Semitism masked in activism and that you're using identity politics to shield yourself from critiques. You're talking about all women being invited to that march. I'm pro-life. We were not invited. We were, we were not allowed at that march right there. I'm a conservative woman. I also represent, if you're talking about women, you should be talking about all women, including Jewish women as well, and conservative women. Well, well we want think, to make I sure. I don't speak for Jewish people, but I think I'm just confused. Mm. These remarks are, I mean, it goes on death to Israel over yeah, and over so again. We did not make those we remarks. Did not make you can't but put you're associating me. with a man and who so does I, what publicly. I will, what I will say to you is that I don't agree with many of Minister Farrakhan's statements. That's Specifically that's, about Jewish people. As I said, I don't agree with many of Minister Farrakhan's statements. You uh, condemn them? I don't agree with these statements. At the end of the day... You won't condemn the, it. No, no, no. To be very clear, it's not my language. It's not the way that I speak. It is not how I organize. And I think it is very clear over the 20 years of my own personal activism, my own personal track record, who I am, and that I should never be judged through the lens of a man. That's that right. is actually not what this women's movement is supposed to be about. And of course, you know, the, the left is basically crying out, all of you people on the right need to denounce Steve King for his white supremacy views. Where are you people on Louis Farrakhan? You guys are embracing him. You're at his daggone convention. And then you're acting like, oh, well, you know, it's no biggie. Maxine Waters is out here hugging it out. She's got some love from Louis Farrakhan. And Farrakhan's got some great stuff to say about her. How are you? Thank you so much for coming. How are you, sir? Glad to see you. Uh, love you. Love you. you too. Love you. Thank you, sir. We have Maxine Waters here. Our great congresswoman from this area. She didn't get there as a fluke. You know, every time one of the Palestinians comes strapped with a bomb, the response from the Israeli government is the use of F-16 planes, which are American. Tanks from America. Helicopter gunships from America. Rockets 
from America. The Palestinians have nothing to defend themselves with. So they're so exhausted and exasperated. Think about that. Strapping bombs to themselves, making themselves a weapon. And then for the world to get upset because Iran or somebody is trying to send them some weapons. Do you expect Muslims to see their brothers suffering like that and not come to their aid? So to stop the madness, President Bush has to rein in Ariel Sharon and stop him from using in response to that weapons that these people have no defense against. And her take on Islam itself is pretty interesting as well. Listen to Maxine Waters some more. Now, uh, I have to thank Adam Khan, the president of the Council of Pakistan American Affairs, for the invitation. I thank him, along with uh, the Islamic Society of Orange County and everybody on the board who's been involved uh, in putting this town together. Over the last year, and due to the focus of House Republicans on so-called Muslim radicalization, we have seen politicians and pundits attacking the Islamic faith as a security threat to the United States. Across the country, these people are exploiting fear and trying to convince state legislatures that the steady adoption of Sharia tenets is a strategy extremists are using to transform the United States into an Islamic country. The scare tactics are working in at least 13 states where lawmakers are now considering the adoption of legislation forbidding Sharia. A bill in the Tennessee State Senate, for example, would make adherence to Sharia punishable by 15 years in jail. And one of the nation's Republican presidential candidates, Newt Gingrich, has called for a federal law that says Sharia law cannot be recognized by any court in the United States. Now, those of you who know me know that I call names, and I tell it like it is, and so I want you to know who these people are. In addition to the state attacks, the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, Congressman Peter King, has vowed to continue his controversial radicalization hearings, specifically focusing on Muslim Americans. While it is a challenge for lawmakers to strike the right balance in protecting both liberties and security, Chairman King's and other Republicans' disrespectful approach to thwarting extremism is contrary to American values and actually threatens national security. Of course, she is right there with Ilya Omar and Rashida Tlaib about their hatred for Israel and their hatred for the president who they call illegitimate. Just listen to Ms. Omar from Minnesota. My, my presence and my win um, really serve as a nightmare for, for this president um, and his followers. 
This manufactured crisis can only end when this, uh, the inhabitants of the White House decide that they have to give up on their fantasy wall. The wall really is a symbol of xenophobia and racism, holding the American people hostage so that they can get a political win. Immigration system really is extremely broken. We have to make sure that we have one in place that is humane, just, and fair. There is a narrative around what Muslim women are like. We are supposed to be um, submissive and, and oppressed. We, we have made the impossible possible by getting here. Impeachment for this president, I believe, is in it. So on the other side of the break, I want to get into what is the BDS movement? What is the genesis behind it? What is the idea behind it? And maybe even a little history behind Israel itself why they are a legitimate nation, why they've always been a legitimate nation, and why Palestine has no legitimacy. Back in just a second. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. The BDS movement. Freedom, justice, equality. Only someone's not going to get equality out of this mix. Someone gets their equality sacrificed in the name of justice. And justice isn't based upon actual justice. It's retaliation for not allowing conquest to occur. It's retribution for standing ground over historical and biblical claims to land that has been inhabited by the Jewish people for centuries. The freedom is the elimination of the Jewish race of people to allow Palestinians to have reign over their desired territory. That's basically what the BDS movement is. It's boycott, divestment, sanctions. It's a Palestinian-led movement for freedom, justice, and equality. All that sounds great, doesn't it? They just want freedom and justice, you know? They just want justice to their land and equality. They just want to be like everyone else except for the Jews. BDS upholds the simple principle that Palestinians are entitled to the same rights as the rest of humanity. Although the Jews are not, apparently. Israel's occupying and colonizing Palestinian land. No, that's uh, the caliphate that was relinquished by General Allenby back in 1917. You know, it's biblical land that the Islamic community took over. Um, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire. But anyways, and um, they are inspired by South African anti-apartheid movements. So that's the thing you want to realize that the BDS movement is fashioned after the South African anti-apartheid movement because what they're trying to do is they're trying to rebrand and reframe Israel as an apartheid state, something General Mattis has even made mention to. Yeah, Mad Dog Mattis. He called Israel an apartheid state as well. Hmm, interesting. The BDS calls action to pressure Israel to comply with international law. BDS is now a vibrant global movement. Hmm, must be endorsed by that anti-Semitic United Nations conglomerate. Made up of unions, academic associations, churches co-opted and coerced by this militant group, as we'll get into, and grassroots movements across the world. 11 years since its launch, BDS is having a major impact and is effectively challenging international support for Israeli apartheid and settler colonism. Or settler colonialism. You know, that's all from their website, by the way. And of course, we talked about how there is a 
uh, a measure in the Senate that's on hold right now due to the government shutdown, Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East Act of 2019, which combats, uh, it includes a combating amended, uh, amendment of Combating BDS Act of 2019. So what's interesting is who they laud is some of their great heroes. The BDS movement salutes Angela Davis. Angela Davis, the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, PACBI, a founding member of the BDS movement for Palestinian rights, salutes you, Angela Davis, for your lifelong struggle for justice and express its full solidarity for Ms. Davis. The Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, the BCRI's reversal of its decision to present Professor Davis with a Human Rights Award was due to her long-term support for justice for Palestine, as she puts it. It is a missed opportunity to honor an iconic figure who has for decades consistently embodied the values the award is meant to recognize. Our deep disappointment with the BCRI's decision is tempered not only by the huge outpouring of support for Angela Davis. She has received all of this outpouring of support, but also by her resolve to instead attend an alternative event that will empathize the organic link between the struggle for justice locally and globally. It is increasingly clear that the Israel lobby, including a fanatic Christian Zionist wing, is nourishing a new McCarthyism in the U.S. and elsewhere, with loyalty to Israel's far-right regime made into a litmus test, suppression of freedom of expression and undermining intersectional solidarity. There's those key words, intersectional. Intersectional solidarity are key features of this heightened repression. So who is Angela Yvonne Davis, who is going to seek this reward for the BDS movement. Congratulations to Angela Davis. Well, she's an American political activist, academic, and an author. She's got a great history, too. Listen to this. She emerged as a prominent counterculture activist in the 1960s, working with the Communist Party USA, to which she was a member of until 1991 and was briefly involved with the Black Panther Party during the Civil Rights Movement. After Davis purchased firearms for personal security guards, those guards used them in 1970 in an armed takeover of Marin County, California's courtroom, in which four people were killed. Dang, that sucks. You know, God, man, shouldn't have given out the guns. You know, Ms. Davis, you purchase the guns, and then you hand them off to these guys who take over a courtroom and kill the judge and three other people. She was prosecuted for three capital felonies, including conspiracy to murder, but she was acquitted of all charges. Ms. Davis is a professor of University of California, Santa Cruz, and its History of Consciousness Department. Mm, that's a great department to be a part of, the History of Consciousness. She's also a former director of the university's Feminist Studies Department. Her research includes feminism, African-American studies, critical theory, Marxism, popular music, social consciousness, and the philosophy and history of punishment and prisons. So she must have been down with understanding what happens when somebody gets arrested for killing people in a courtroom. She co-founded Critical Resistance, an organization working to abolish the prison industrial complex. Yeah, we can't have these people locked up for killing judges in courtrooms. Angela Davis's membership in the Communist Party USA led California Governor Ronald Reagan in 1969 to attempt to have her barred from teaching at any California university. 
She supported the governments of the Soviet bloc for decades. During the 1980s, she was twice a candidate for vice president of the CPUSA ticket. She left the party in 1991. Boom, done. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. It's a part of that whole Communist Party USA. And all of a sudden I said, yeah, you know, you grow up some days and you just walk out of the party. So in 1991, she quit the party and ah, done. Washed your hands clean. Who believes that? Do you really believe that? I mean, seriously. Do you believe that she just woke up one day in 1991 and said, yeah, I'm done with this whole communist thing that I've been doing for the last 30 years or so? So here's the interesting incident in question. On August 7th, 1970, Jonathan Jackson, a heavily armed 17-year-old African-American high school student, gained control over a courtroom in Marin Cali, California. He armed the black defendants and took Judge Harold Haley, the prosecutor, and three female jurors hostage. As Jackson transported the hostages and two black convicts away from the courtroom, the police began shooting at the vehicle. Those daggone police, why are they shooting? The judge and the three black men were killed in the melee. One of the jurors and the prosecutor was injured. Although the judge was shot in the head with a blast from a shotgun, he also suffered a chest wound from a bullet that may have been fired from outside the van. Evidence during the trial showed that either shot could have been fatal. Angela Davis, the BDS stalwart, had purchased several of the firearms Jackson used for the attack, including the shotgun used to shoot uh, Judge Haley which she bought at a San Francisco pawn shop two days before the incident, before those beautiful three-day waiting periods. Not to say that three days would have made the difference. She was also found to have been corresponding with one of the inmates involved, John, uh, John Apt, general counsel of the Communist Party USA, was one of the first attorneys to represent Davis for her alleged involvement in the shooting. So, obviously, BDS seems to be an upstanding organization, doesn't it? Jewish Voice for Peace endorses the call for Palestinian civil society for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. It ends occupation and colonization of all Arab lands occupied in June 1967 and dismantles the wall in Israel. Recognizes the fundamental rights of the Arab uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel to, fully e uh, to full equality and respects, protects, and promotes the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and properties as stipulated in UN Resolution 19 or what was it 1940. So basically, the Six Day War they're not happy with, and the BDS movement originated in July 9th of 2005. It was a call by Palestinian civil society organizations for boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel for academic and cultural boycott of Israel as well. This followed the establishment of the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel in Ramallah in April of 2004. The call is portrayed as a response to Israel's unwillingness to submit to a ruling of the International Court of Justice condemning Israel's security barrier. In truth, the boycott campaign actually predates the establishment of Israel. Arab boycotts were formally declared by the new formed Arab League Council on December 2nd of 1945, because 1948 is when they fully uh, took the, uh, you know, the is Israeli area. The Arab boycott, um, Jewish products, manufactured goods, shall be considered undesirable to Arab countries. All Arab institutions, organizations, merchants, commission agents, and individuals were called upon to refuse to deal and distribute or consume Zionist products or manufactured goods. Is as evident 
in the declaration of the terms Jewish and Zionist, which are used simultaneously. The objective of the boycott has been to isolate Israel from its neighbors and the international community, as well as also to deny it trade that might be used to augment its military and economic strength. The boycott was primarily conducted by the Arab states until 2001. The forum was marked by repeated expressions of naked anti-Semitism by non-governmental organization activists and condemned by such United Nations High Commissioner uh, for Human Rights, Mary Robinson, who chaired the conference. The forum's final declaration described Israel as a racist apartheid state that was guilty of racist crimes, including war crimes, acts of genocide and ethnic cleansing. The BDS movement seeks to link Israel uh, and Israeli policies with racial segregation practice uh, practiced in Af uh, South Africa in 1948 to 1994. So they're framing it very similar to the apartheid of South Africa, as we said earlier. That's part of the goal because it was successful with South Africa. So let's see if we can implement it here with Israel. The BDS movement rejects the peace product, uh, process and the idea of the two-state solution to the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Its leaders routinely dismiss peace efforts ranging from the 1978 Camp David peace accords to the Oslo process to President Barack Obama's peace initiatives. So the boycotts have targeted stores that sell Israeli products, entertainers who plan performances in Israel, Israeli artists performing abroad, unions, professional sanctions, and other individual or groups with some tie to Israel that they believe they can intimidate. And they've been pretty, pretty uh, successful with some of these things. They went after Coldplay and some of these other artists that they wanted to basically demean for doing shows in Israel. I think they went after Radiohead, who put them in their place. But they've also gone after churches. A group of anti-Israeli activists have repeated campaigns to convince the Presbyterian Church of the United States Presbyterian Church USA to divest from corporations operating in Israel. In July 2004, the church approved targeted divestment directed at businesses that it believes bear particular responsibility for the suffering of Palestinians. But before selling their shares, companies were to be given a chance to change their behavior. The American Jewish community opposed the church's decision and ever since has made an effort to prevent further deterioration in the relations between the community the church, and Israel. In 2015, the United Church of Christ, one of the largest Protestant denominations in the United States, voted to divest from companies that profit from Israel's occupation or control of Palestinian territories and to boycott of products of Israeli se uh, settlements. In January 2016, the General Board of Pension and Health Benefits, the United Methodist Church's investment agency, announced that it would no longer invest in Israel's five main banks under the pretext that they did not meet their standards for sustainable investment. The Mennonite Church of USA voted at their national conference in Orlando, Florida in 2017 to sell its holdings in companies that profit from Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. So they've targeted businesses, they've targeted entertainers and manufacturers, and also they've targeted churches and church organizations and have been effective in making some of these churches, even though the biblical basis to being someone in support of Israel is littered throughout the Bible, somehow they've been able to make these churches acquiesce to their demands. But you know who isn't acquiescing? You know who is manufacturing? 
And I don't even know if there is some sort of Israeli backing or not. There may not be. Who even cares? Tar River Arms. TRAguns.com is where you can go to purchase online guns for a great price. They have weekly specials, 3D imaging that lets you get your hands around what the weapons that they sell look like without actually being in the store. Yeah, you're not physically holding them, but you might as well be. With the 3D imaging, it gives you all the views that you want, and the prices are amazing. They've got great specials. TRAguns.com. That's Tar River Arms. Com. All right, so let's get into the history of Palestine and Israel, because actually Palestine isn't really a thing. It's kind of, you know, an area. Not really. It's kind of like a group of people. They said, uh, we're going to put you somewhere. Israel, though, has always been a thing. And I think one has to look back to biblical times. Here's the thing. Most people, you know, and this isn't me getting preachy, but most people will sit there and say, well, you know, maybe what if I don't believe the Torah? What if I don't believe the Tanakh? What if I don't believe the Bible? Well, that's fine. You don't have to, but 90% of those same people will say, yeah, the Bible may not be, or Christianity or Judaism may not be a real religion, or I may not believe in it, but the Bible was a good history book. Well, that being the case, then you recognize the history of Israel. You recognize the fact that God gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites as they broke free from Egypt. The Jewish people broke free from Egypt and basically were told, here's where you go. God didn't have them completely on his side as he wanted to, so he made them wander in the wilderness until they were good and ready. Then he brought them in. And then he told them, hey, the people that are inhabiting this land, destroy them, conquer them, and make this land yours. And they didn't. And so they intermingled with people that God didn't want because they were wicked people. And next thing you know, Israel was in the perpetual issue that they were always in. And one of the things that I urge people to do, there was a Bible study that I read called, we went through, my wife and I called Seamless. And it was really interesting because it kind of took the gist of every book of the Bible on a, on a 400,000 foot view just little pieces, and bridged all of it together to where when you looked at it from an above view, you were like, okay, I get it. I see running themes. I see repeating issues. One of the biggest repeating issues was Israel and how every time Israel got comfortable, every time they got full of themselves, every time they took their sights off of God, God said, okay, you know what? We're going to allow punishment to be levied upon you. It wasn't God levying the punishment. He just kind of backed off and said, oh, the Assyrians want to destroy you? Well, we're going to let that happen. Oh, the Babylonians want to destroy you? Yeah, we're going to let that happen. Oh, the Philistines, which is where Palestine comes from? Yeah, that's going to happen. And every time they turned their eyes back, Israel was restored. Here's the interesting thing. Going into the 20th century, Israel and that entire area was conquered by the Ottomans, the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate of its time, Islamic rule. You know, just like Constantinople was turned into Istanbul. One of the things that kills me is the left always wants to justify the Palestinians based on the length of time that they occupied an area. But with America, you know, David Hogg can get out there and go, wow, I can't believe these people want uh, borders when they're on stolen land. 
No one ever accused Mexico of being stolen land by the Spaniards. Never once was it vilified that the Aztecs and the Mayans were conquered by the Spaniards. That never comes up. They never vilify the Spanish conquistadors and the Spanish uh, uh, explorers. Those like Columbus ever gets. They never vilify that, but they do with America. Because it's the delegitimization of America as a nation that ultimately is their issue. You know, they're not out there praising, oh, well, we need to give California back to Mexico. Well, guess what? Mexicans weren't Mexican. They were not of Spanish descent before the Spanish conquered it. But, you know, let's not let facts get in the way. And the same thing can be said for the Palestinians. They basically uh, conquered much of the Middle East and had it for quite some time, centuries. And during that time, that's where it was established that the Ottoman Empire would rule into World War I. Now, the interesting part of World War I was when the British decided to uh, look into basically liberating and returning Jerusalem. It's a really amazing story when you look at it. General Edmund Albee, or Allenby, he and his British troops were getting into position to apprehend Jerusalem. Allenby was known as a Christian. He was a follower of the Bible. It is reported that the night before the invasion, Allenby prayed that he might take the city without destroying the holy places because he was very, very much brought up on the importance of Israel, and he cherished those holy areas and didn't want them destroyed by the people who had occupied them. So he had wired London for instructions and had received scriptures that basically said, as birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. Passing it over, he will preserve it. That was from Isaiah 31.5. So General Allenby was pretty stoked about getting this news. And at that point, he decided to get every available aircraft for a flyover. On the morning of December 10th, which seemed like hundreds of planes skirted low over the Temple Mount. They sent the planes in. Allenby made sure that the planes went up in cloud covering, which hid them so that they weren't seen, only heard on the ground. This is where it gets amazing. Flyers were dropped that said, Surrender immediately. You do not have a prayer. Signed by General Allenby. What the general didn't know was that the Turks believed in an old prophecy that they say they would never lose the holy city until, quote, a man of Allah came to deliver it. According to reports, the signature of Allenby on the paper dropped from the sky was interpreted to them to mean the word Allah in Arabic, meaning God, and Bey for Allen Bey in Arabic, meaning son. The Turks were looking at a demand to surrender signed by Allah Bey, the son of God. In response, they hoisted a white flag and surrendered the city without firing a single shot. So on the first day of the Jewish feast of Hanukkah in December 1917, the Battle of Jerusalem resulted in the city of Jerusalem falling back to British forces led by General Allenby after 400 years of Turkish rule. So immediately after the 1917 reestablishment of Israel, after the Ottoman Turkish rule, the British um, established a geopolitical entity in 1920 and 1923 in the region of Palestine as part of the partition of the Ottoman Empire under the terms of the British mandate for Palestine. So that's what they did. Those people from the Ottoman Empire who were displaced because of the 
relinquishment of Israel to or Jerusalem to the, you know, the Jewish nation. They gave them that area as a compromise and mandate that said, hey, this is your area. During the First World War, uh, an Arab uprising and the British Empire's Egyptian expeditionary force under General Edmund Allenby drove the Turks out of the Levant during the Sinai and Palestine campaign. Now it gets into what they're concerned about in 1948. The land west of the Jordan River, known as Palestine, was under direct British administration until 1948. The land east of the Jordan, a semi-autonomous region known as Transjordan under the Hashemite family from the Hayaz, gained independence in 1946. And in 1948, the state of Israel was established after the defeat of the Nazis And, you know, it went on to be that that would be the region that Israel would be known as. So 1917 to 1948, and then you get into what would be the full fulfillment of a 50-year span. Remember, the Israelites looked at what they call the Shemitah. Basically, there was seven years of of crop uh, farming and, and productivity, but in the seventh year, they had to basically surrender that year over to the Lord and completely trust in him and that he would provide all their needs. And that kept them humble as a a nation. Well, then there was every seven of those was considered a super Shemitah. And that basically spanned out a 50-year span. Well, within a 50-year span, Jerusalem was given to the Israelites, and then the nation state of Israel was established. And then in 1967, the Six-Day War occurred, which basically was the Egyptian president, General Nasser, in his attempt to basically create his own pan-Arabism, bringing the Arab Middle East under his domination, was something he tried to do. And he tried to bring in the Arabs. Most of them didn't like this deal because they didn't want to be under the rule of Egypt. But they were basically... Uh, This was Egypt's way of trying to follow in the footsteps of Hitler. You know, basically he squeezed off one of their supply chain routes and he wanted to take an offensive and attack Israel to wipe them off the map. Israel decided, well, Israel got proactive, saw a lot of this coming with the actions of Egypt, flew in an air, air force and basically decimated their entire plan in the Six Day War and in doing so, now returned the Western Wall and the Temple Mount under the rule of Israel. So in a 50-year span, Israel was restored, and so was the Temple Mount and the, the Western Wall. Now, what happened 50 years later? Well, that's when we get into 2017, and President Donald Trump basically taking America and recognizing that the capital of Israel would not be Tel Aviv anymore. It would be Jerusalem. Another 50-year span, another super Shemitah. So God in control, bringing Israel back in. And this is what makes the left who are godless. This is what makes the left who despise Judaism, who despise Christianity. They basically call them Zionists. And they can't stand anything that has to do with anything of a supernatural power because most of them are either agnostic or atheist. And and they want to turn Israel into an apartheid state and squeeze them out economically 
we see that there is a bigger plan in control. And we have to recognize that as conservative Christians. You know, sometimes Israel will do some things that we're scratching our head about. But you know what? The Bible basically tells us as Christians that we should support Israel. And that Israel is God's people, even though they don't recognize Jesus. We have to look at it as though our, our existence as a Gentile Western power is to support God's people in Israel. So that's why I support it. And that's why I think this BDS movement is complete garbage, because what they're trying to do is economically destroy the Israelites and, and the Jewish nation. So that's what you're dealing with, with Rashida Tlaib and Ilar Oman. They're working their way into the House of Representatives. We have to be weary of where they're going with their legislation and their power. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. You can check us out on Mojo 5 Wednesday nights, 10 until 11 p.m. Also, Saturday evenings, 5 until 6 p.m. And also, Saturday, uh, Sunday, 5 until 6 p.m. Also, check out the podcast on Spreaker, on the Mojo 5 Spreaker page. Also, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play. Also, on TuneIn and Podbean, Overcast. Just search Adrian Slade. Check out the blog, adrianslade.show.com. You can also get the free Roku channel in your streaming store for on-demand shows. You can also check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash adrianslade. Donate $2 a month or maybe whatever amount you wish. Or you can donate $4.99 at anchor.fm. We will see you guys next time.